0: Welcome to On The Other Side, where we talk crypto culture and society and how crypto might shape society and change how real humans live their actual lives. Every week we have on cool people from the crypto world to talk about what they're building and what the implications of that might be for real human beings. Before we hop into the show, I want to give a quick thank you to the first sponsor of On The Other Side, Rabbit Hole. Rabbit Hole is allowing users to earn crypto while they explore the weird world of Web3, guiding new users down the crypto rabbit hole in a curated way to make sure that people coming into the space are not only using positive sum protocols, but are also starting to build their on-chain resume as they do it. So the longer term vision for Rabbit Hole is building essentially the open credentialing system for Web3. To build that credentialing system, it's important that they're decentralized. And so the Pathfinder program is paving the way for decentralizing Rabbit Hole and creating an open system built by the community, not by a single team. If you're interested in learning more about Rabbit Hole, check out rabbithole at rabbithole.gg. You can also check them out on Twitter, rabbithole underscore gg. And if you're interested in learning more about the Pathfinder program, which is the first step to the Rabbit Hole DAO, you can check it out at rabbithole.gg slash pathfinder. All right, let's hop into the show. For today's episode, I'm talking with Spencer Graham, who is one of my favorite builders in the DAO space, is doing a lot of thinking on DAOs, but also actually is in the weeds building them. This episode is a little bit longer, but I think it's definitely worth listening to the whole thing. In the beginning, we're very theoretical, and then towards the end, we get into very tactical and practical implementations of DAOs, so I think it's definitely worth listening to it throughout. In the very beginning, the theoretical conversation is based on a Twitter thread that Spencer had that I will link in the show notes. But if you just want to listen, I'll give a really basic rundown. So essentially, Spencer sort of talks about some of the foundations of what makes a DAO a DAO, and he has this thesis that essentially... DAOs start with actions, which are this atomic unit of coordination, and all actions really have two phases. The first is the decision phase, so this is coming to consensus on what, if, or how something might work. The analogy he uses is what button should we press? And then the second piece is the execution phase, which is when the result of the decision is actually made to manifest. So in this analogy, it's actually pressing the button. And so these two core fundamental pieces make up a lot of our conversation around what DAOs sort of have at their core. Spencer also adds on another piece, which is actually the ability to propose. But I think that's foundational to understanding our conversation. So I'll link the Twitter thread. I would highly recommend checking it out. And I hope you enjoy the conversation with Spencer. I am here with Spencer Graham from DAO House, also working on Raid Guild. Spencer, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited to be here, Chase. I have listened to uh, a number of these episodes and I really have always enjoyed the conversation. So it's pretty cool to be part of one myself.
0: I so appreciate that. And it's always fun engaging with you on Twitter. We're thinking about a lot of the same things. So I'm super excited to have this conversation. Before we dive into it, do you want to give a little bit of background on you, how you fell down the crypto rabbit hole, and then what you're working on and thinking about?
1: Yeah, I, I always kind of struggle like with where exactly to start, but I've always been very interested in technology. My background sort of since like leading into college and then college was economics and psychology and the intersection of those in, in behavioral economics. And so I started out my career looking for ways to apply that knowledge and I kind of ended up in, in advertising and then you know, got into like, quantitative marketing research, you know, kind of flexing some of those muscles of like how to think both quantitatively and qualitatively about problems. But ultimately, that wasn't satisfying me as as much as I wanted to. And I sort of found a very similar niche in the tech world in product management, which kind of focused on similar things, but for a very different purpose. And the purpose is to build stuff that helps people rather than just talk about that stuff that other people have built in a marketing kind of way. So I ended up actually in healthcare in doing product management. And it was in healthcare where I really had my eyes open to just how terrible, at least in the United States, the healthcare system is and how backwards all of the incentives are. And I started to kind of pull on that thread a little bit and figure out that, and and what I realized is that a lot of it stemmed from patients not being able to own or control or sort of take with them their own data that is relevant to their bodies and the services that are provided to them and that results in all these silos and really weird perverse incentives between healthcare organizations and institutions that should be collaborating with each other but have in strong incentives to to actually defect from each other and it creates all this weirdness. And I had sort of known about Ethereum and and smart contracts a little bit and been interested on the outside but through that new lens of patient ownership and patient identity I really started to get a much better appreciation for how powerful the notion of of smart contracts and you know, self-sovereign identity and patient control of, of data could be. And then from there, I kind of just, as everybody does, the, the rabbit hole kept widening and <laughs> widening and widening, and I kept falling deeper and deeper. And ultimately, about a year ago, I, I decided to rip off the Band-Aid and, and go full-time into DAOs and Web3 stuff. Originally, I was thinking about healthcare things in that context, but I haven't really been since then. And that, that led me to to Raid Guild and, and DAO House and thinking about service DAOs and all of the like DAO tooling and DAO structures. And here I am today.
0: Yeah, I love that. And it's really cool because I think there are a lot of people thinking about DAOs, but we were talking about right before we started recording. You're actually full-time DAO. And that's a whole different ballgame. When you're actually in the trenches building, I think it really creates an entirely different way of, of thinking about these organizations. I know you've thought a lot about what makes a DAO a DAO. Before we dive into like what your current hypothesis is, can you talk more about why it's important? have these conversations about what a DAO is and maybe isn't?
1: Yeah. And, and that's kind of the question, or the question of what is a DAO is, is what I started out with. And that's still how I have fallen into talking about what I've been thinking about. But I, I've realized as I've thought about it and worked on the problem and gotten input and feedback and had conversations from a, a number of other people, it may not be the best framing because The place that I was coming from when I was thinking about it was this place of like noticing that there were a lot of things going on, a lot of organizations spinning up that were calling themselves DAOs that I I felt like didn't really meet the fuzzy criteria that I I had in my brain. And I couldn't really articulate why exactly, so I set out to figure out why in a concrete manner. But I've since kind of shied away a little bit from that more adversarial approach, although I I still do occasionally take an adversarial uh, approach a little bit to taking a slightly different approach that tries to understand what is it that is powerful about these structures and how should we be talking about them and how can we label and identify what is powerful so that everybody can better understand that and so we can build structures and organizations and communities that are based on the things that are important and powerful and and be very explicit about that.
0: Yeah, I love that. So it's kind of like instead of saying this is a binary yes or no, it's more of like, let's investigate the foundations that make this special, and then people can follow, you know, whether or not they want to build that way. So in that context, what makes a DAO a DAO?
1: Yeah. So I think the the way that I have come to to understand this question is that any organization can be described or categorized by the types of decisions or actions that it is capable of making or taking. So it's more of an accumulation of what the organization or that community or that group does and is able to do. So almost like a bottoms-up definition of of how to categorize these different groups of people than a top-down categorization. And I've found that perspective much more freeing and and quite helpful for understanding this. So one way to think about it is to look at actions and kind of to break down what are all the different phases of a particular action that any individual or group or, in a generic sense, agent takes or can take. And then to try to understand where those phases can kind of go awry or how they can behave in different ways, depending on the structure or the makeup or the rules of that organization. And how that organization is kind of put together. If we sort of skip ahead to to the end here, in in my view, as far as I can understand right now, I'm sure this is going to change over time for me, but as far as I understand right now, a DAO is an organization that is capable of of taking actions where the decision-making process about what action to take can occur in a decentralized fashion, where there's many people involved in the making of that decision, And, and this is, I think the most important part where that organization is capable of of executing that decision, actually making the result of that decision manifest in the world, taking a concrete action in a collective manner. So not making a decision as a group, and then having one person delegated to go act on that, or only one person or small set of people having the power to go act on that. So instead having everybody hold the power collectively to bring that action into the into the world.
0: Something that I think is really interesting about this is I was doing some research into peer-to-peer networks, like BitTorrent, even, you know, aspects of like social media you could consider in a very loose sense peer-to-peer networks. What was interesting was that one of the key characteristics of peer-to-peer networks is actually having a uniform set of actions that they can do. So if you think about like TCPIP, there's like a few key things that a server can do. What I think is interesting about this is like your sort of set of actions, it feels like, are make decisions and execute on those decisions, right? Like that's kind of the framework that that you're almost setting for this type of decentralized action coordination. Is that a fair way to, to sort of characterize the way that you're thinking about this?
1: Yeah, it is. And and although there was one more that has been brought to my attention more recently, which, is, which comes before all of those or, or those two components, and that is proposing or, or the proposition phase. And I realized that was really important because especially when we're talking about on-chain kind of smart contract-based actions, often the ability to kind of execute the action or, or execute an action means that you're at ac- you're executing one of a set of of actions that were sort of proposed earlier and then there was a decision made about which one to execute and sometimes it's a yes no should we or should we not but it's the it's the power to propose to kind of set the agenda to yeah it's the power to kind of set the options that are possible that is also really important because if even if you have like completely decentralized and collective execution if if there's only one option because there was only one person that was able to set what the agenda is then it doesn't matter how decentralized the execution process is there's only one thing that's possible
0: it's interesting because it almost mirrors this other characteristic of these peer-to-peer networks which is that because they're decentralized and there's not a hierarchy If a piece of information wants to travel through a a decentralized network, in an ideal world, it can skip over any single node and go a different path, and that's actually really important for avoiding hierarchy because, to your point, if it has to go through a certain process or if it has to be proposed by someone specific, then it's just centralized again. And so I almost wonder what the implications of that combined with the way that you're thinking about the ability to propose as an action that should be uniform, what the implications of that are on like a very tactical level when it comes to making sure these networks are actually decentralized.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. And I don't think I have a great answer, but maybe one way of thinking about it, or maybe a distinction that, that potentially is instructive is thinking about the difference between a Distributed, decentralized network, like say Bitcoin or, or Ethereum, and an on-chain governance system, which some people could call a DAO, like a Moloch DAO or Compound Governor type type DAO, where, where all of the execution happens on chain collectively. I think there is an interesting distinction between the, those two because in in the in the latter, there's basically voting, like explicit voting, and then that voting is the thing that makes the decision, but it also is the thing that executes. Whereas in a more distributed network like Ethereum and Bitcoin, the the execution on certain things is like, should I follow this fork of the chain or should I follow this other fork of the chain? Or should I install this upgrade to my node software that's going to change the protocol or should I not? Or should I sell this other one? That sort of thing. And I think that is extraordinarily decentralized from a like operational perspective, because everybody's sort of making their own decisions, but all of those decisions kind of collectively result in something that emerges out of that. Like at some point, we all collectively, or people who are running ETH2 nodes, collectively decided to upgrade to the Altair fork. And so now we got this new ETH2 protocol that allows for light clients. And if everybody had decided against that, or the majority had decided against that, then we wouldn't have gotten that new feature. So there was nobody that was kind of in centralized control of that. There was not even any, uh, there was no choke point whatsoever for that. And I think that is interesting and and very distinct from on-chain governance where even if it's decentralized, there still is some like logical point that needs to be flipped basically. Hmm.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And it kind of brings me to this question of like, this is probably not an accurate statement. But if you think about like Ethereum as a purely decentralized and autonomous organization, Bitcoin being the same way, is that really, I mean we talk a lot about like DAOs are not typically decentralized or autonomous fully in the sense that we that the original meaning of the word DAO came about. Is that really ever going to be like an end goal? Are we in a weird in between or is that like actually just not really the right take for a broad majority of organizations that will call themselves DAOs.
1: I think that's probably true. And I think this is one of the reasons that I've shied away more from like, is this a DAO or is this not a DAO kind of binary thinking? Because there's always a spectrum of autonomy and there's always a spectrum of decentralization and there's sort of different versions of them. Something might be more perfect DAO-like and something might be less perfect DAO-like. But it's very difficult to to determine in a general kind of contextless way where to draw a line.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and something that I think was interesting that you sort of assert in your, your thought process around execution is this idea of like, centralized aggregate versus collective, which feels like in some ways it plays a role in this question of autonomy. Can you talk more more about how you're thinking about that?
1: Yeah, so I'm still a little bit fuzzy on some of these distinctions, but I think I've, I've started to come to a pretty decent point where, so, the, you, so you could either have decentralized or centralized, so centralized is like one person or a very small group of, of colluding people. Are sort of executing something. You could have, and then there's on the decentralized side, there's multiple types. One type is I've been calling aggregate execution, which is where individuals are making you kind know, of private decisions, private executions based on whatever they see in front of them. And this is like result, a market,
0: right? Like, yeah, like any yeah, sort of like, capitalist market,
1: right? Like, I have some some assets and i based on the incentives and like kind of the the context that i see in front of me i might make a decision about what to do with those assets i might sell my nft i might sell my tokens i might buy something and then all of those actions across a number of people aggregated together sort of result in some emergent thing like a market price or uh a certain amount of liquidity in a protocol, that kind of, but the, but then there's this other type of, of execution that is still done by many individuals kind of acting on their own, but is, but I'm calling uh collective because what they're acting on is like a shared piece of something larger. So like the Ethereum state is. Like I could, in, with my Ethereum node, I could decide to follow a chain that has different state. And if many of us decide to follow that chain, then we have kind of collectively changed what we have all determined as, as the Ethereum state, even though all of us are making individual decisions. And then there's a third type where it's like truly collective, where all of us are like, we all have our fingers, all of our fingers at the same time on the button. And that's more like on-chain governance, like uh, a vote that gets executed because there's a certain number of – there's more yes votes than no votes. Hmm.
0: Okay. So this is interesting because there are like a few key things that come to my mind. The first (laughs) is how you distinguish between what you're calling collective decisions and emergent properties of aggregate decisions. The example being the choice to execute on a given governance proposal could be the equivalent of a market price where it's actually the emergent property of an aggregate of decisions. Or is there something uniquely different about it, whether that be like the human side or more of like the the organizational design side that makes those things different?
1: Yeah, this is great because you're hitting on exactly the thing that I'm still a little bit uncomfortable with and fuzzy on. So I, I'm working on it. I think it might have something to do with the type of like resource that is being acted upon or used in the action. So I've started to go down this path of like, can we use this framework of like common resources versus private goods kind of thing to, to help tease that out? And I suspect that we can, but I, I'm still not quite there on, on that. So they might be the same thing if we kind of, if, if we zoom out far enough, it also is possible that they are, there really, really is an important distinction and, and they're not. My hypothesis right now is that, that they are distinct in, in an important way, but I'm, I'm still struggling a little bit to put my finger on exactly what that is.
0: Can you talk more about the private versus like public resources question? or thought that that you're currently working through on that.
1: Yeah, so in economics we have the the notion of different types of goods. So this is where like public goods come from versus private goods and they they differ by a couple different dimensions. And I think we can use that to say that in general when a, a group of people are making decisions, they're either making decisions and taking actions on resources that are commonly held within that group or that are privately held by each of the individuals within that group.
0: That's really interesting. So it's really about like, who are you making this decision on behalf of? Is it a shared resource versus a private resource essentially? Okay. So, so, If that is sort of the breakdown, which maybe it's not, but let's say that it is, where it's like I'm either helping govern something that is owned by the public or I am um, making a decision for myself that has some emergent effect. It's almost like I'm aware in the first instance where I'm helping govern a resource that I am helping do that, whereas I'm actually unaware of the emergent effect of a market price which is kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. And it feels like in some ways that is almost how I think some interesting aspects of like politics, if you ignore the way they actually play out, let's just say in theory, play out, which is as a voter, you have two options. The first is to vote for what's probably best for the public. And the second is to vote what's best for you. And so you could vote on really low taxes because you don't want to pay taxes, but you actually believe that from a moral perspective, let's say, it's actually – and for the public, it's actually better to pay higher taxes. What's interesting is that I think – I don't think most people actually vote that way. I actually think a lot of people convince themselves of either point depending on probably what benefits them. But it feels like the difference in awareness of who you're making decisions for matters. I'm curious if you think that's the the difference or if you think there's a different dimension there.
1: So the the dimension that you're, you're positing is the awareness of the individual about what type of resource they are governing when they're taking a given action.
0: Yeah, basically.
1: Huh. That's possible because I think there could be, especially if we replace the word awareness with perception like you mm-hmm. could have lots of different effects even if the ground truth is the same like if somebody perceived that the decision that they were making or the ballot measure they were voting on for example was something that just influenced them they might make a very different decision than if everything was the same except they perceived that th- that decision influenced them and and others, or influence them via some sort of collective mechanism.
0: Yeah, I do kind of wonder in this context, I think we tend to think, particularly in crypto, but probably just in a lot of different societies, that capitalism is pretty good at allocating resources compared to almost any other model. And part of the reason is that you don't have to think about anyone except for yourself when you're making a lot of these decisions. Now, that's not always true. Like, I think a lot of people take into account climate change and other factors. So maybe that's the wrong way for me to be framing it. But I do think there's something interesting when it comes to this idea of emergence out of a market based on an individual's decisions versus, like, someone's choices of who they're voting for. When I think about that, I'm beyond curious what the implications of some of that will be in like these basically digital democracies, which I think DAOs kind of are, in the sense of like, are we even good at governing public goods? Like, as humans right now, the way that we do things, maybe we are, but are we? Like, like I don't know. I'm I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that.
1: I think empirically, we're pretty terrible (laughs) and have been for pretty much all of human history. The fact that we can't we, like it's so obvious that climate change is a massive problem, but we just can't get our heads out of our asses to collectively solve it. I mean, it's the moloch problem, right? Like, and public goods and that kind of thing are breeding grounds for <laughs> for for the moloch problem. And yeah, we like we've just been empirically empirically really really bad at that. But I, I do think that we have this new opportunity with this new, amazing combination of technology and culture that is web three to maybe change that. I really, like, I I don't know if, if it's gonna be enough. I don't know if DAOs are gonna save us from some of those like big existential public goods kind of threats that we face as humanity. What I am pretty confident in is that they are our best shot. And if we don't solve them with this stuff, then I don't think we ever are going to be able to.
0: For anyone who doesn't know what the Moloch problem is, can you can you explain it?
1: Yeah, so, so very simply, it's like a Moloch as a god is basically, or like a demon, is a personification of the challenges with a coordination when we have misaligned. Insight. That's a little bit of a bastardization of, I think, the original articulation, um, which came from the, Meditations on Moloch uh, blog post or, or essay by uh, Scott Alexander. But I, 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 it's, that's probably a reasonable uh, reasonable summary where the, the problem is not between all of us. like We are not in conflict with each other when it seems like we're in conflict with each other or when our incentives don't align. It's rather that there is a problem inside all of us that is making it not capable for us to coordinate to avoid that problem.
0: I think there's definitely, and maybe we do another whole podcast episode on this, <laughs> but I think there's something interesting too. A lot of the times when people are talking about what makes a DAO a DAO, they're talking about like ownership and incentive alignment. And what I thought was interesting in the context of your thoughts on what makes a DAO a DAO is that you don't really talk about incentive alignment. And I think that's super interesting because I was listening to the co-founder of Wikipedia talked the other day. And part of his point was like actually people not getting paid was in a, not, not because paying people is bad but because it's like if we had paid people we would have changed the entire incentive structure of Wikipedia and we probably would have become a very different organization. But you didn't mention incentives and I think that's interesting because it's like I do kind of wonder what the role of incentives in a lot of this even is. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that.
1: I think incentives are, are hugely important and I, I think probably are or d- deserve like a layer of their own kind of above the this like basic structural framework that I'm trying to work out to understand like the the taxonomy of of decentralized organizations. I think incentives have a huge role to play in, in helping those be successful and accomplishing what they're what they're doing and I like have spent a lot of my life thinking about incentives and how to create incentive mechanisms and and other things. And I'm like doing a lot of that stuff today in the work that I do. But I think the, the important thing that underlies all of that is power and the distribution of power and, and how that plays out. I feel like the thing that DAOs can do that nothing else in history has been able to do is give a bunch of people actual direct power over the thing that they are collectively doing. And in my career in like Web2 or traditional companies, the the refrain from managers has always been like, I want you to own this, or I want you to feel like, I want you to really take charge of this. And it all like, I I totally got that, like that's that's really important. But unless you actually really do have a piece of ownership over it, that all kind of rings pretty hollow. And, and in DAOs, when you're a member of the DAO, you really do own it. And it's it's a really important and kind of like a magical transformation that happens when you own something, especially when you own it with other people versus when you don't own it. And that really, really changes. Well, it changes your incentives for, like a lot. And it also changes how you feel about the thing that you're doing, which is which might be just as important as the incentives.
0: What is that feeling?
1: (laughs) I don't think I can really describe it other than to say that it has completely changed like for the last year that I have basically been leaning into that feeling and exploring it for as much as I can. It has changed the like completely changed my relationship with work and what I do and how I relate to the way that I earn an income and you of know, maintain kind of some life sustainability, and it's turned it's changed it from work to not exactly play, but just like like personal expression of what I care about, and that is a, like it's been for me personally such a an, an incredible gift, and one of the reasons that I'm so fascinated by and bullish on the concept of DAOs in general is that like. If I if, if I try to imagine what the world looks like if everybody or even just like five percent of the people in the world, hopefully everybody, but even just a tiny percent of everybody gets to have that transformation, then like imagine what we can all what we can all do. So like that's why I've been like I care so much about what really is a DAO, because it's that feeling, that transformation of of your behavior and the way that you relate to your work and what you do in your life that is uniquely possible, I think, from DAOs.
0: Yeah, I think flexibility and autonomy of DAO work both probably play a role in that too. And, and I'm sure other factors, but very much enabled by, honestly, a lot of the organizational structures, but also I think the comp structure of DAOs generally, like the way that they're, they're working, which I know you've thought a lot about with DAO House. Would love to hear about sort of the newer approaches to comp that you're thinking through.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We've been rethinking the way that we do compensation for contributors at, at Dow House in the last month or so. And it kind of grew out of a personal experience I had, but but more generally, I, I think that personal experience was very much a reflection of what a lot of people have been thinking, even if it wasn't explicitly in their heads. And that was this idea of, boy, I feel really <laughs> feel really stretched thin across a lot of things that I've said yes to, because they're all so amazing and exciting. And the space is so so vibrant that I felt like I've personally felt like I was not committed to anything because the way that I was getting paid by everything was sort of this in this like retroactive, did you provide value, yes or no, and how much kind of way? And in one sense that's really freeing and allowed me to go find and do a lot of interesting things across a lot of different projects. But in another sense it kind of trapped me in this feeling of of the inability to to focus and really do deep work on one or two or even maybe even three things. So once I kind of was able to to label that and started talking about that with some other people, we realized that we could do something about that in, in House and change our compensation from this like very retroactive, what did you do this last month? Okay, here's how much we collectively think you should be paid for that kind of approach to not getting rid of that because that's important, but adding another possibility or another track, which we've been calling the commitment track, which basically says, you commit to working for some amount of time or prioritizing Dow House in a certain amount of way over your day or week or month. And then we are starting with a period of two months. And if you commit to that, then based on kind of your rough experience level or like what we collectively sort of predict your, the amount of value you'll bring to Dow House will be over the course of that time, then you get a, a kind of a guaranteed compensation. So what we're really trying to do is hammer in like to everything as many options for contributors as possible. Like they can choose the hyper-flexible option where there's a little bit more uncertainty, but they have a lot of freedom to go work in different places and kind of come in and out, which I think is a really powerful asset for DAOs to have to attract people who want to do that. But then also you have the option to, to make more of a commitment and then have the DAO make more of a commitment to you. and. Have there be something that you can really kind of sink your teeth into and like a backboard against which to say no to other things, even though they may be interesting, to allow you to continue to focus on what you have decided for yourself is what you really want to focus on.
0: I think that's a massive step in the right direction, especially when we're having this broader conversation around how DAOs allow for work polyamory and all of these things, you know being monogamous is not always a terrible thing either. There's benefits to both. And so that analogy, I think, holds true here also. But I'm curious, in the context of like a two-month period, for example, are you thinking this will manifest or is it already manifesting in more of like a project-based context or is it just role-based being a resource in in a bunch of different capacities? Like very tactically – How do you see it playing out from a a value add perspective?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think we have a lot of experimentation to do. We sort of started with because this is a fairly big change. We were starting with sort of the simplest that we could think of that still kind of achieved the properties, the basic properties that we wanted, and that right now is pretty loosely defined from a role perspective. So it's not project oriented. It's not task oriented. It's and it's only loosely role oriented, because a lot of us in DAO house work across a lot of different work streams. So like we have four, you know, sub DAOs or circles within the Dow house core contributors Dow, and a number of us, including myself, work across all of them. And there's, so there's not a really easy way to define what our roles are in that sense. So we just said, you're committing to Dow house as a whole, and you're going to provide value to DAO house core contributors Dow as a whole. That may change over time as we explore other ways of doing it. Like it, it, we could start to add on this, maybe a more project-based approach. We might extend out that time frame, like allow people to commit for a longer amount of time and maybe incentivize certain people who want to do that to do so with like higher amounts of house compensation or something like that. There, there's a lot of dimensions that we can explore. And, and I think the questions that you're asking just there are like some of the key ones that we can iterate on.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited to see how this plays out. Partially because, honestly, not having project-based is really interesting in the sense of, I think, a very common thing in DAOs that actually holds more true than it should is just showing up is like 50% of the work. Not actually 50% of the work, but having people consistently show up and consistently trying to find ways that they can create value and support the organization I think is massively important. Maybe that's just because of the current types of personalities DAOs tend to attract. I don't know. But I'm super excited to see what ends up happening with a little bit less structure and then slowly adding it on as need be and as you experiment. I think this is going to be really interesting. Will you still have things like coordinate allocations retroactively on top of this or no?
1: Yeah, so we're using coordinate I think in an in an interesting way. So previously we were doing two things actually. So we had basically contributors would say, hey, this is what I did over the last month, and this is roughly what I think I should be paid in terms of die for that. And then they would make a proposal to their to their subdao, and sort of the the funds would flow that way. And then on top of that, we had a I don't know some some months ago we started a coordinate like bonus system for distributing house to people based on sort of the intersubjective assessment of of the value that, that everybody brought to the table. We're keeping the coordinate stuff as, and, and we're upping the amount of house. So we're kind of increasing the the bonus that that contributors get. And that's gonna span across people that have elected to stick with that retroactive, more flexible track, as well as across the people that have selected the commitment track. So everybody's gonna be in the same coordinate circle. But I think one thing that could be really interesting is that we can use the the coordinate results one to distribute house proportionally to to value that's been created but also to kind of assess people's growth over time or maybe the extent to which they're not contributing as much or in the same way as as we all expected or as they committed to doing so as or as they committed to doing we haven't we haven't tried it yet like we're we're going to get the first sort of first version of that in about a month or or two but i'm really interested to see if that if that works I have this hypothesis that we can use sort of the the proportion of give points that you receive relative to everybody else compared to like an expected proportion to get a basic read on whether you're like overperforming or underperforming. Um, and I, I'm very interested to to experiment with the notion of using that same coordinate mechanism as like this decentralized bottoms up intersubjective performance evaluation tool.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And what I think is really an added dimension to that is thinking about that notion of expectations being a constantly reassessed question where we talked before we started recording, and you kind of touched on this, about this idea of, you know, like contributing to a bunch of different DAOs is kind of stressful. But also, I do think there's a flexibility in, you know, maybe doing a little bit more with Dow House for a couple seasons and then stepping back and doing more for a different Dow. And so setting what the expectation is going to be, going into like, let's say a season or, you know, a a certain time period, Mm -hmm. feels like an important aspect of that too, where you're sort of like flexible in the ability to change how you're signaling to people almost like the type of work you're going to do. I don't know if that makes sense, but I think that's an interesting aspect. Like what expected really means in this context is can actually change a lot.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and that, I, I think we're trying to, trying to account for that and like build for that in, in the sense that that, the, that commitment track is not just like I'm a hundred percent committed to only doing Dow house somebody can select like any percentage along that entire range so they can make a commitment for a given period or season of a hundred percent if they want, or they could say, I'm going to like, I'm going to be busy with other stuff. I still want to be committed. And like, I want to give you an expectation of what I'm going to do, but I'm going to drop that down to 50% or I'm going to drop that down to 20% or maybe the next season or cycle, I'm going to ramp that back up because I know I'm going to have a lot more time. So it's like, Oh, like a little bit it's still there's still a lot of flexibility, but now the like the, the individual periods are, along which you can be flexible are, are larger. So there can be a better expectation of how available or committed or how much you're gonna prioritize Dow House work.
0: I love that because also let's say this works out really well and every DAO adopts this. If you're 200% committed in aggregate across a bunch of different DAOs, (laughs) it's like perhaps I should ask myself if this actually makes any sense. And it also helps signal to people I am or am not available for this amount of time, which I think is honestly half of the challenge coordinating with other contributors. It's just very hard to know Mm how committed someone is and how much you can trust them to do something, not because they're not trustworthy, but because it might not be a priority for them. I've been on both sides of this and that's been challenging. And in the side where I was the one guilty of definitely not committing as much time as someone thought I was, there was this like, weird trying to coordinate. And then on the flip side, of course, I wish that the person who I had asked to do something or expected to do something had communicated that with me. So it's always interesting to see these things play out. And I'm super excited about this experiment, I think. It's a really, really interesting one that hopefully ends up working out well because I think this could do a lot of DAOs a lot of good.
1: <laughs> yeah, we're we're looking forward to evaluating how it's going for us and then sharing what we've learned with with everybody else. That commitment thing and like sort of the signaling your bandwidth or availability is a really interesting problem that i i've seen a number of people in in, including you talk about and like converse about on on twitter and that's inspired a little bit of what we've we've been doing and then all at at dow house and then also has led to some stuff that we're experimenting with or starting to experiment uh, within raid guild which is more of a more of a service dow uh, like web three dev shop kind of kind of model, and for that we we launched our our raid token at some number of months ago, and that has allowed us to do a lot of interesting experiments with using the raid token as kind of an incentive mechanism and signaling mechanism so we're we're just starting to to play with this idea of or i guess to to back up in raid guild People go on on raids for clients, which basically means they join a, a project team that is doing something that the client has hired the guild to do. And in theory, you could be on many different raids at once if if they're not all kind of like requiring your full time. And then also, people are doing lots of things outside of outside of the guild. Like I'm in the guild, but I'm also working for for Dowhouse. So it's a really challenging question of for our our clerics, basically our, our account managers, of like. Who is available to help do this work that the client wants to pay us some money to do? So we're trying to explore this, this possibility of, like, can you stake your RAID tokens to get some other tokens which represent your total bandwidth that you have at this moment or this week or this month that you're interested in spending on RAID guild things? And then like when you want to join one of those things, a RAID or an internal project, can you stake some of that like bandwidth or allegiance or commitment or some word, some concept to that thing. And then basically credibly signal that you've now decreased your your other availability. We're still working it out, but I think this is a really rich area for for DAOs and especially service DAOs to experiment with.
0: Yeah, I feel like a lot of agencies, whether it be development agencies, advertising agencies, any agency that's doing like service type work, will very likely adopt models like this because the coordination overhead right now is a little bit funky for agencies like that. And also, it's weird because theoretically, a lot of those should actually be collectives of workers. They're just not because you have coordination overhead that people are basically taking on. So I love the idea of experiments like that within Raid Guild because it's actually a collective being paid for their work rather than having, you know, an art director who (laughs) actually gets paid like $300 an hour. But, you know, the agency charges $1,000 an hour for their services, because that obviously doesn't doesn't really make sense. So yeah, I'm super excited to see how all these experiments play out. Before we wrap up, I have a segment at the end of the show, which is what is your favorite thing in your wallet? It could be an ERC20, an NFT, anything. But what is your favorite thing in your wallet?
1: So I, I have to confess here that I have prepared mentally for for <laughs> this question because I, when I heard it the first time, I forget which episode this was, but I was like, oh damn, I have no idea, but that's a really interesting question. I still don't think I can point to a favorite, but I don't know, like sort of underrated favorite for me is, <laughs> this might require a little bit of explanation, but I'll try to make it brief. So there is this project called Fountain by an NFT artist named Schloems who basically took a real world urinal kind of like Duchamp did and like put it in a in a gallery as like very conceptual art and then smashed it up with a hammer and then took really high quality sort of 3D basically images or videos of each of the shards that were created when he or he or, or they smashed it and then sold those shards as as NFTs and also sold the hammer. So not the shards themselves, of course, but it's this like 3D representation of of each of them. So that in itself is very cool because it's like taking this old like conceptual art concept from like basically over or about 100 years ago and creating in this new way in this new NFT, NFT world. But then and this is my favorite part, somebody else took those videos or those 3D representations and trained an AI algorithm to like generate new images based on all of the previous images. So this is like layers on layers of referencing, reference to like this sort of absurdist data art stuff. And then they sold those, like ai generated images of like quote unquote toilet shards as nfts and they're not worth very much from a eth e- 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 perspective but i think they're hilarious and amazing and so those are kind of my underrated favorite thing in my wallet
0: that's really interesting i did not know that someone did that with the the shards that's really cool shloms has been running it up in new york <laughs> this week for nft nyc with a truck where you can smash stuff. Shalom's is doing some really cool stuff. I will totally link to that because I think that's super cool. And just like a really interesting experiment. I love the composability of, of art in crypto. I think it's really interesting and feels um, much more, I don't know, I think the archivism aspect that Sirsu came on forever ago on the podcast and talked about was like really interesting. And so being able to credit someone and then build on top of their work is so, so cool.
1: Yeah, um, I love so it. So I
0: love that. It's it's a very interesting experiment. Spencer, where can people find you? I will say you are totally an underrated follow in, in the DAO Twitter space. So where can people find you?
1: Yeah, well, I appreciate you saying that. So my, my Twitter handle is Spengra, which is kind of a portmanteau, of my first and last name. So S-P-E-N-G-R-A-H.
0: Beautiful. Um,
1: that's probably the best place to find me. I'm also... On Telegram at the the same handle and and Discord and whatnot, but Twitter is probably the the best place to follow me and and contact me. I would love to love to chat with anybody who is interested in discussing these kind of things.
0: Beautiful, Spencer. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was so awesome to chat.
1: Thanks, Chase. Really, really um, honored that you had me on.
0: If you like what you heard please make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast. I always forget to do this for podcasts I like, but it's actually super useful. Also, if anything resonated with you or if you want to continue the conversation, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Chaser Chapman. I absolutely love talking about these things. Thanks again for listening.